Welcome to How Musicians Make It. My name's Adam. I'm your host. And today we're talking about the waterfall strategy, the waterfall release strategy. It's a certain kind of release strategy. It's been around for a few years now, and it's really interesting. There's a couple interesting reasons why to do it, and we're going to get into that nitty-gritty today. Man, since our last episode, I went down to New Orleans. I drove basically the whole way from, from like the Upper Peninsula, the other side of the country, and it was about 3,000, it was like 3,000 miles probably, a little more than 3,000 miles, but I think I personally drove close to 3,000. It was absolutely wild, and uh, we got to work with some really amazing musicians down there, Miles Lyons, who plays tuba with uh, Young Blood Brass Band and the New Orleans Nightcrawlers. So I've done a little touring with, with Miles, and, and he did a, a master class with our students, my students here at Michigan Tech. Um, it was great. It was really great. And then we worked with uh, Walter Ramsey, who is the founder of Stooges Brass Band down in New Orleans, and we worked with Eric Gordon, who, who plays with a whole bunch of bands. He played with Stooges and TVC and Hot 8, and is it Hot 8? Does he play with Hot 8? I don't know. He, uh, he, he plays with Rebirth Brass Band now, so he tours with Rebirth Brass Band. Actually, Eric is like, I mean, Eric's an unbelievable trumpet player. He's one of my favorite trumpet players right now uh, on the planet. And uh, and he's primarily in that brass band world. He plays with Galactic, too, actually, the uh, Stanford Moore band. Uh, we got to hang with them. And the night before, we had, <laughs> so I'm going to tell you this story because there's some lessons to be learned in here. Uh, we we played on the street uh, after the Miles Lyons masterclass. So we went and like played on the street. It was early afternoon. It was like a Thursday. You know, uh, the Gen Conference was in New Orleans, but they were like downtown, like really far away from what I consider to be actual New Orleans. And there weren't that many. It didn't seem like there were that many like people from the Jazz Educators Conference that were like hanging around the streets in New Orleans you know, where all the venues are, where people are playing all the time. And so we, you know, we, we went down there. I had planned this trip before I knew Jen was going to be down there. So, uh, I knew I had connections and I knew I'd be able to set up some opportunities for my students. And I knew like, I didn't want to book any gigs for my students in New Orleans because they're playing brass band music and we're learning other people's tunes. You know, we're learning like rebirth tunes. We're learning Stooges tunes, we're learning Hot 8 tunes, Mama Dig Down's tunes. Now we're finally learning a Young Blood tune here. But, you know, it just felt like my students are there to learn. They're there to get experience. So I'm going to have them play on the street instead of, like, trying to take a gig or whatever. And we'll play in the early afternoon when nobody else is out there playing. So we did that. We went to um, Washington Square Park, and we kind of played on the corner of Washington Square Park, pointing towards Frenchman Street, which is kind of where all the stuff is happening. You might be thinking everything happens on Bourbon Street, but really like Bourbon Street's just a shit show now and Press Hall is on Bourbon Street. We did go to a show at Press Hall, but anyways, my students played on the street Thursday afternoon and, you know, we played on the corner of Washington Square Park for a while, maybe six, seven tunes. And then we walked on Frenchman Street. We just were like, let's walk down Frenchman Street. Let's just see if there's a spot for us to play. And we ran into somebody who will remain nameless and he was like yo this is where brass bands play they play on this corner outside this chicken shop and we were like okay cool so we 
pulled up and we played like four tunes, three, four tunes. And uh, that's like, um, that corner is like a cultural hotspot in New Orleans. It's where like a lot of the young bands that play brass band music, you know, coming up, they'll, they'll play on that corner. And, and uh, I don't know that I was like, as aware as I should have been that of the significance of that corner. And there's also, I've come to learn there's been like some interactions with police on that corner sometimes where like bands get kicked off the corner and there's a big conversation, which I've been following for a while. And I kind of knew was happening of like culture, right? Whose culture is this music and should it be protected and should other people be allowed to learn it? And I don't know that even that's the conversation. Should other people be allowed to learn it? I think it's just like, whose culture is this? And I've been clear with my students. Like, look, we're we're learning about a thing that is like a New Orleans, like a deep New Orleans thing. This is black music that we're learning and we have to understand our place in it. And we talk about that kind of thing a lot. We've done themed concerts here at the university. We did a, a, a show called jazz as protest where we like went through all this protest music throughout the history of jazz music and we talked about the events that inspired the pieces and I had a narrator on the show and I had a slideshow of photos um, documenting the events that inspired the pieces so it was like a heavy show that was my first show at the university so I'm sure some people were like who the hell is this guy and that was that was uh fall 2019 so I was like before George Floyd and Minneapolis kind of erupted after that, uh, rightfully so. But there's this, you know, conversation that is related and and we went and we played on that corner and, and some people took some video and a lot of people, like everybody was enjoying it for the most part, you know. But it's like my students who are learning the music they're doing really great they're doing really great and they got so much better being down there and seeing like we went and saw soul rebels brass band and you know we went to Prez hall and they all just like they walked around and they saw that there were bands on every corner and that and that bands were playing the tunes that we've been learning you know brass band standards new orleans standards like bourbon street parade and uh, mardi gras new orleans like all these tunes that you learn in the brass band world and uh and so it was really cool. It was cool to go down there and have them go like, oh, here's the real life application of all this stuff that we've been learning, right? Here it is in real, in, it's happening. It's in practice here. And in a lot of ways, New Orleans is like the old school, it's like the old school music industry and in working still where it's like, you can make a living playing. You can be playing in a ton of bands. You can be playing gigs starting at, you know, 11 a.m. and ending at 3 a.m. Different gigs, like two, three, four different gigs in a day. And part of me is like, why the hell don't I live down there? You know, it's like, I, I know all the shit. Like I know the rep. Uh, I, I've been in that world a lot with, with the Jack Brass Band in Minneapolis. I've played with Mama Dig Downs. Of course, I've toured a lot with Youngblood Brass Band, which does a version of that, a, a sort of modernized version of it. But certainly not the first group to like bring hip hop. Is like Rebirth has been bringing hip hop into it since the 90s. But Youngblood definitely has a hip hop element to it a club show element anyways 
you know, people took some video and some of it got posted on Facebook and, you know, it sort of went like viral in New Orleans, which we didn't know. Like I wasn't, I do follow a bunch of New Orleans accounts, but I, I wasn't like looking at my phone all the time. I was organizing a whole bunch of students. I was setting up master classes for the students and I had somebody lined up and they dropped out. And so like last minute I contacted Walter and Eric and they were both super down to do a master class. Um, and when we got to Walter's studio, so uh, Walter Ramsey founded Stooges Brass Band and, you know, has played tuba and trombone and bass trumpet. And, um, we went to his studio and he's like, man, y'all are kind of going viral in New Orleans right now. And we were like, what, what's that about? And we learned that, you know, there was this conversation like, what are like, what is this whack ass band doing playing on this corner? Who are these, you know, white kids? playing Stooges brass band music you know we were playing like wind it up like you know one of the quintessential Stooges brass band tunes um and from the back row I was, I was playing snare drum so like there are people who know who I am and and would potentially recognize me if I were holding a trumpet and might be like oh like that's that dude that has been down here a bunch with Jack brass band and Youngblood and these are like oh look these are his students you know it's like it's there was there was context lacking for sure <clears throat> and you know this conversation that's been happening um you know this whole conversation in in the world of jazz too that like we should change the music to to bam we should change the the word to describe jazz to bam to black american music and uh nicholas payton really brought that conversation to the forefront in the last handful of years but it's been a conversation that's been happening forever like you know, Duke Ellington went to Fletcher Henderson and was like, they're calling our, our music jazz. We should figure something else out. Like we should call it something else. We should name our own music, you know? And, uh, and so it's, it's been like the conversation has been going on. Like everybody has, it seemingly everybody has, has touched on it. Who's, who's like a major name. Like we know that Max Roach, would like lecture about this at, at Ivy league schools. Um, we know that Coltrane has talked about it, that miles, you know, wanted to call it social music that Lee Morgan wanted to call it black classical music. These were like, these are like forties, fifties, sixties. These conversations were happening twenties. So this is nothing new. Right. And you know, when, uh, John Johnson makes makes Mexican food in his kitchen. It's still called Mexican food, right? We we still call Latin music Latin music. Cuban music is Cuban music. For whatever reason, black music, at least improvisational black music, we've called jazz for forever. And of course, the uh, some of the more famous quote unquote jazz groups were like led by white and the were, were primarily white bands which is clearly problematic right it's like it's the Eminem effect or the the Elvis effect right taking black music and like becoming the most famous becoming the most famous person to do the to do the music um even like modern day like Macklemore talks about being a tourist in the music and and wanting wanting to make sure that people understand the the origins that that were pointing pointing to the heroes at the very least um and that we sort of understand our our place in it uh and i'm a i'm about that like i i i do you know nicholas payton has said this himself that 
you know, BAM is for everyone is what he'll say. It's still BAM, but BAM is for everyone, but still, still, still black music, black American music. Um, and there are arguments on, on either side of this where there are people that are, you know, are steeped in the jazz tradition who are like, why would we get rid of the name? So it's a huge marketing problem. But this conversation of like, whose music is it? Whose culture is it? And, and should it be protected has been going on a long time. And my students and I just sort of waltzed into that conversation by playing on the corner of Frenchman Street, um, uh, on Frenchman Street in New Orleans this this last early January. Uh, and I did not... So we're in Walter's studio and Walter and Eric are working with our students and like, you guys are kind of going viral because we were asking them like, you know, what was it like to grow up in New Orleans? Like, what's the culture like? You know, when did you start learning this music? And Walter told us, you know, from a from the time that he was a, a little kid, he's like, he wanted to make this music and would march in parades and would, you know, found a trombone. It's not unlike Trombone Shorty's story, which is like, found a broken trombone, started a band with my friends when I was seven. It's like, that was Walter, you know? And, uh, and Eric too, they, they grew up in it and they both also take part in this Mardi Gras Indian culture, which is a whole thing by itself, but it's also kind of linked to the brass band culture in New Orleans a little bit. So we asked about Mardi Gras Indian culture and we learned a lot about that. Um, it was just great to like hear them talk and absorb, uh, the history of the music and the importance that it has in the community and in New Orleans, and um, you know, we played we played "Old Man," which is another Stooges tune for for those guys. Um, and Walter like got his phone out and was was FaceTiming with some other members of Stooges brass band, so they knew like these people that were on the street last night that are going viral right now, and everybody's saying like, "What are these people doing here? Why are they doing this?" You know, you know, this is ridiculous. It's like these people are actually like here in good faith. I I think that that's what Walter was doing. They're here. They're here. They're learning from us. You know, they're put like my whole thing was like, I wanted to make sure that I put money in the pockets of the, of the brass band musicians. You know, that's why I sought out clinics for my students from these players. Cause I wanted to put money in their pockets. I've got a budget here. We're learning that music. Much of it was written by those exact dudes and played by the and recorded by those exact dudes. So it's like, look, I want to put money in the hands of of those guys, um, and I want my students to learn from them. And so that's that's really ultimately the whole reason we were down there. We're down there in good faith, in the same way that like Young Blood Brass Band and Mama Dig Down, these other bands from the north, and Jack Brass Band have been going down there for years to learn, you know, and sit in with bands and be told how to do it correctly. Um, there's always been a generosity from the musicians in new Orleans on like, this is the way we do it here. So if you're going to do it, this is the way you do it. Uh, and I've always felt like those kinds of moments are gifts. You know, I had a similar, I've talked about this on the pod before, but I've had a similar, I had a similar moment like this with, um, Justin Robinson, the saxophone player tour with Roy Hargrove for a long time when I played on a Roy Hargrove tribute show and, uh, in Minneapolis and Justin, you know, pulled me aside in the back and, told me some stuff about the way I was approaching a certain tune and it was just really great it was really helpful and encouraging but also like dude there's some stuff you got to figure out 
Uh, and this was five, six years ago. It's like, we're always learning. I, I'm, you know, it's like in a chance to interface with somebody like that, who's a master and have them give you that information. Like that's a gift. Um, and I feel the same way about working with these guys in new Orleans and just being around that culture and like seeing it happen in real time. And so motivating, you know, I've been shedding trumpet way more because of it, <laughs> but you know, in a lot of ways, this is, I, and I tried to tell my students cause it's hard for I want to say a couple of things. I did not seek out the video that started going viral. I forced myself and it helped because I was driving almost 3000 miles. So every time we had a free moment, we were in the van and I was driving. And so I couldn't be looking at my phone. So that definitely helped. But there was a time, there was a moment when I had, had, you know, a chance to look and I just decided I'm not going to search for this video because I don't want to lose myself and what I know is true in the comment section, right? It's easy to like read a comment section and, and, and then I felt sick about it already because I thought, man, we made a mistake. We probably shouldn't have played on that corner. And that is, pro- that could be true. Like, and I, I don't, I, I didn't ask Walter and Eric, like, what's the etiquette? Like, should we have not played on that corner? And maybe I should have asked that question. I probably should have, but you know, <clears throat> I didn't go seek out that video because I didn't want to lose myself. I know we're going down there in good faith. We're putting money in the pockets of the, of the real players that do it for real. We're learning. We're there to learn. We went and we played on the street for, you know, in total, like between Washington square park and the Frenchman corner was probably like 45 minutes. I mean, it's like nothing. Nobody else was playing on the street at the time. So we weren't taking the corner from someone later on that evening. Another guy, did go another band did come and play that corner um you know so we tried to do, we tried to do it right um and in a lot of ways I, I think we did and and i think my music my students you know they've really fallen in love with this music and, and it was pretty souring to hear a whole bunch of random people on the internet who weren't there and who don't know who we are and don't know me and that and that like we're students and we're down there to learn and we're getting clinicked by Walter and Eric and miles. And, you know, it's like, there's no context. And and so I think it's pretty, it, it can be pretty hard to like read those comments and, and feel like, and feel like, Oh no, what, what happened? You know? And, and then maybe even as white people from the North generalize about, black people from the south you know which is also this like super dangerous so i had to sit down with my students and and said like look i but the reason i didn't go read that stuff is because really like people on the internet aren't real people it's like this isn't the way people actually act in real life and so there's there's that element but also like we shouldn't paint anything with a broad broad strokes with 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 the same brush right we shouldn't paint anything with the same brush with not all not all black people are the same. Not all white people are the same. Not all trans people are the same. You know, like what we, what we experience, like in the, in the sort of like backlash of playing a few songs on that corner, there's, there's lessons to be learned there. This culture is important. It's important to a whole group of people and it's important for us to understand what we like where we can operate within that and this was definitely a learning experience in that way and we can take away those lessons 
but it doesn't mean like everyone in New Orleans is racist towards white people. Like that's ridiculous. But I think it soured the taste a little in some of my students' mouths and I had to go like, look, if, you know, so I talked to some people in Youngblood too and they were like, they were like, look, if, if there were cell phone cameras when we went down to New Orleans in the, in the late 90s and early 2000s, we would have been eviscerated for the same reason. But eventually we learned the, the shit and we learned to do it the right way. And when we play out, we talk about the bands down in New Orleans and we point t- people towards them. We say, go listen to Rebirth. Go listen to Dirty Dozen. Go listen to Hot 8, right? Which is what we do, um, what I do with my students when we play schools because uh, that was part of this trip is we played we played three schools, a school in Mississippi and two schools in Wisconsin um, on the way down. Uh, but man, it's, you know, it's one of those things where it was like, stay, like, don't, don't read the comments. Don't look at the video. Don't read the comments. Like we, like we know, like I know where my students are at. I know where my students are at. I know they're in a learning phase. They're also doing so great. They're doing so great with the music. They're digging deep. They're learning everything by ear. They don't use any sheet music. They haven't for five years in this band. This is the fifth year of no sheet music in this band, just learning every single tune by ear. Some stuff we were missing, and it's great to like go work with the bands, and they go, oh, uh, you know, how did you... <laughs> Walter asked the uh, my band in the clinic, he gave, like, hey, how did you guys learn this tune? Did you learn it by sheet music? And, and we were like, no, 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 no. We learned it from a recording. He said, okay, fix your bass line this way. And they worked with my tuba players on their bass lines. And Miles did that too. Miles worked on, with the tuba players. But Miles also, like, you know, rebuilt a bunch of the tunes that we played to go, like, this harmony should be here, this harmony should be here. And it was really great and helpful. Um, and as I said, like the musicians down there are always so generous and it's been some time since I've been down there. Like I, I was going down there a lot with Jack Brass and I went down there and played with Youngblood and I played there with Todd Clauser and it had been a minute, you know, it's like I hadn't been down to New Orleans since like 2015, 2016. And then there's the whole pandemic and there was a whole, you know, movement, a whole nother like modern civil rights movement happening. Um, and so these are all important conversations to be having and I don't blame anybody in the comment section for for feeling the way they feel. I think it's an important thing for an important conversation for New Orleans to be having like, Hey, this is our culture. We should be lifting up and supporting it and lifting up the artists who are living here in New Orleans and doing this music. And I agree with all of that. Um, and there were people, I, I only know this because I, you know, one of the devs who works on our app gig boss, he's a, he was in New Orleans for a long time. And he saw this pop up in his feed. He texted me. He was like, you were down there? Oh, man, I saw this whack-ass thing happened on the corner of Frenchman. I was like, bro, that was my students. Was like, you, like, he had no idea that it was me, and we worked together all the time. Uh, and I was like, you know, what was whack about it? <laughs> like, let's talk about that corner. So he educated me a little bit on the corner itself and, like, the history and the things that have been happening lately with bands getting kicked off of that corner and sort of favoring the restaurant that just came in, <clears throat> even then, even though that corner is like a historic corner, we're going to talk about the waterfall release strategy. Eventually. I'm sorry that I'm still talking about this, but this has been on my mind and I just think it's such an important thing for me to hash out. Um, and it's easy. It's, it's easy to feel defensive. And I don't know that I ever felt that way. I like personally, I felt like 
okay, I made a mistake. What, what lessons can I learn? Like, that's how I want to look at this kind of stuff. Uh, but also, I don't want that to uh, disenchant myself or my students from loving this music. Like, I love this music. This is why I teach this music everywhere I go. I teach these tunes by ear to students everywhere I go. And I tell everybody, go listen to Rebirth Brass Band. You don't want to go to war because I teach everybody. When I go to schools, I usually teach this tune, Hurricane George, uh, by Rebirth Brass Band. And I've opened for Rebirth and I've met those guys and I've hung out in green rooms and, you know, like they probably don't, maybe don't know me from Adam, har har, but, uh, but, you know, I've been in this shit a long time. I've been in the shit and I've learned the shit and I've done it the right way. And I'm working at that with, with my students who are all non-majors, by the way, my students don't major in music. They're playing their asses off. Like they, they're, they they do not play like the bands in New Orleans yet. Um, like the real bands in New Orleans, I should say. But they are learning the music in good faith and with good intentions. And they understand, and I understand, that there's a big conversation happening that's really important that needs to happen. Um, and so we experienced that. We... we had a great time like on our way back we played at the Broadway Oyster Bar in St. Louis and we played at Three Sheeps Brewing in Sheboygan and you know we got to kind of put on display what we learned in New Orleans Um, and a lot of what my students took away from the Soul Rebel show was like man look at how they rock the mic like how they do crowd participation and how how they do crowd interaction kind of stuff it's like New Orleans bands are amazing at that kind of thing and I pride myself on being good at talking on the microphone at shows and I've definitely like when when I do the brass band thing I borrow all that shit from New Orleans you know and Mike you know Mike Olander who runs Jack Brass Band in in Minneapolis I heard him do all that stuff for many years as well um so I know that he's just like like he's just you know he's parroting what is heard in in New Orleans because the way they interact with bands is badass or interact with audiences I mean any band can learn from that. I mean, like, go down to New Orleans and watch a brass band do a show with an audience in a, in a tight little club. You know, we went to Le, Le Bon Temps Rule uh, to see Soul Rebels, and it was killing. It was killing. So, yeah, you know, um, talked to a lot of people. It was nice to get a message from Eric Gordon, one of the musicians in new orleans who clinicked the band um who plays with rebirth brass band and he was like thank you for embracing the culture and for spreading it to the next generation and it was just it was nice to hear to hear that you know the the moment that i heard it was you know i was kind of still in my head about about like oh no what what happened like how did this happen <laughs> it's like and in a lot of ways i just felt i just felt bad for my students i want them to be excited about this music and they are like i think they felt like this was a life-changing and i remember feeling that way the first time i went to new orleans and if you've listened to the podcast a long time you know this because I've, I've said this to people who i've interviewed um that lived in new orleans or or that still live in new orleans but the first time i went down there my it completely blew my brain wide open like i was like whoa i didn't even know you could play the trumpet in that way and for those of you that don't know, I'm primarily a trumpet player, but I play a lot of guitar and I write a lot of songs and I release all kinds of different music. Um, 
I compose I compose a lot of music as well. <clears throat> but uh I was just blown away the first time I went down there. I, I remember being like, this is a magical place. Like what? This is, you know, it's like another, it's like being in another country. It's like being in another country, but you're here. Uh, a really beautiful place with a, you know, it's like one of the stories Walter told us was was about like how Mardi Gras Indians, like how the Mardi Gras Indian culture started. And it was it was back in slavery days in New Orleans when slaves were allowed to go to Congo Square and mingle with Native Americans, where Native Americans were teaching you know slaves how to sew. Like that's some heavy shit. Like that's the history of that. And you know we're not even a hundred years from the from the civil rights movement in the 1960s so this stuff is fresh this stuff is fresh and then you still get stuff like you know George Floyd and Jamar Clark and all kinds of other things Philando Castile and in just in just to name a few in Minneapolis so but I'm operating as a cis white male and I'm constantly trying to check myself and make sure <laughs> You know, am I here genuinely? I know you don't want to hear all my my white guilt. Um, I'm just I'm just you know I'm happy my students had that experience in general in New Orleans, and uh, that was an interesting that was an interesting little bit of the trip. Uh, but in general, like it was absolutely killing and we sat in with a bunch of bands and met a bunch of musicians and gave out business cards and did the whole thing. And then ran into somebody in St. Louis who was like, are you, you're the Adam, I listen to your podcast, man. Oh dude, gig boss, man. Uh, you know, so it's pretty fun to run into a musician, uh, that checks this, that checks this out too. shout out to Ron Sykes, drummer and drummer in St. Louis. Let's talk about the waterfall strategy. A shall we? Um, if you're still listening, thanks. Thanks for hanging around. Thanks for listening to me. Yap. Yap about my problems. My first world problems. Uh, thank you. Like, just on the record, thank you, Walter. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Miles. Appreciate you guys very much. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're learning this shit because we love it. And that's, that's the long and short of it all. Uh, okay, cool. Waterfall strategy. What is it? Why is it? And should you do it or not? Uh, okay. The waterfall strategy is a different way of releasing your music. Um, it, you know, if you've been listening to the pod, you know that I experimented with releasing singles weekly for a long time because I had this 17 song one minute one minute per song uh, record that I did with a chamber group that I played in in Minneapolis that I founded and, and played in for and still play in you know theoretically we'll keep working called Lulu's Playground and uh, we hadn't digitally released our Sideshow Suite album so we decided to do that and I did it as an experiment just to see what would happen release one song a week what happens when you release one song a week for 17 weeks and I did not waterfall release the song, but um, in a scenario like that, 
a waterfall release strategy is a, is a, is a really good option. Uh, and one of the reasons for that is each song had a unique cover because each song was commissioned by a painter who did a painting. My father-in-law, who's an amazing artist, did a, a painting of a, of a sideshow character, like a circus sideshow character. And so we, we made unique covers for every single song. Uh, but they are a part of a full-length album called The Sideshow Suite. And on Spotify right now, if you go to the Lulu's Playground page, you'll see that they are not bundled as an album. I put them in a playlist, but they're not bundled as an album. And so the waterfall release strategy allows you to release everything as singles or as many singles as you want for an album. And I think after doing a lot of research, I would suggest every two months releasing singles. If you really want to get some mileage out of marketing each one, I think every two months is a good, it's like too much and, and are too, too frequent. And people think like, how could you be releasing this much music? The quality must not be high. Um, and anything longer than two months and it doesn't feel like a connected thing so every couple of months uh, what you do is you release one song as a single and you create new art for for that single that isn't the same art as your macro release and you release it as a single uh, and if you haven't checked out like how to pitch your songs to editorial playlists like how how much lead time you have like i have episodes that deal with all that stuff um in the history of this podcast but you want to get your you want to get it up um you could you could you could set all these up in advance so that they show up in your spotify for artists and then you can pitch them to editorial playlists each time but essentially the way it works is you release one single and then two weeks later you release that same single, but you release a new song, like you release a new song single with it. So you release essentially like a two song single. Uh, the main single is the new one for your second release and the second single on, or like the, uh, the second song on that single release or that tiny EP or whatever you would call it. That's the song you already released. Now the, the caveat is that you have to use exactly the same audio, so you re- you re-upload the audio every time to your to your distributor. So if you're using DistroKid, you've you've already released the single. It was assigned an ISRC code. You have to copy that ISRC code, re-upload the same audio for the second release, and put in that I already have an ISRC code. And you actually have to have a um, you have to have a Musician Plus plan, which is thirty five ninety nine a year. Um, so it's not the minimum plan. You have to have the next plan up in order to customize your ISRC. So to do a waterfall strategy release, you have to be at at least the thirty-five ninety-nine a year level on DistroKid. I'm just talking DistroKid because that's kind of what I researched for this. Um, <clears throat> you go single one, its own art. You go new art, new single. Single one is on that second release as well. For your third song, you release, and then each time you pitch the new song via editorial playlist you, you pitch via, via spotify for artists you pitch to editorial playlist the new single each time uh for the third release you release the third single and the two songs previously released are also on that one so essentially uh it's like a waterfall in that as the waterfall you know moves continuously downward so do the track lengths on each one of your next releases till you have a full record. So you've got one song in your first release. You've got that same song plus a new one in your second release. Those same two songs plus a new one in your third release. Those same three songs plus a new one in your fourth release. Those same four songs plus a new one in your fifth release and so on and so forth. 
and each one has its own unique album uh, cover with its own unique title. Uh, and then the songs that you're re-releasing each time, as long as they share an ISRC code, all the playlists that the song has been put on will be copied over. All the streams that the song has been uh, that the song has aggregated over each release will compound uh, or will uh, continue to be gathered. Uh, will transfer over if you end up deleting the early releases, which is one option. Uh, but you also don't have to delete the early releases. Uh, now, you could do this all the way until you have a 10-song album, a 12-song album, a 15-song album. You could do it over the course of a year uh, where you do like a six-song EP and every two months you release a song and then at the very end you release, you've released all six and they're sitting there in your Spotify for or your Spotify profile as a record, as a new, as a new album. Um, that last final release would have your actual album art not one of the single modified album arts but like your actual album art and it would have the you know if you're doing a six song ep for instance you'd have the five songs you released previously with all the isrc codes copied exactly the same audio can't be a different length can't be i have read that spotify will probably still allow it if it's like a little bit of a different length or if you remaster it or something if it's the same audio um, but you've remastered it or whatever to make it sound better. Spotify will probably allow the streams to be like ported over. Um, but you, for the, like for, for safety purposes, you really just want to release the same exact, you want to upload the same exact audio so that there's no red flags. Now, why, why would you release in this way? Well, there's multiple reasons. One is we live in a world of singles and singles are the only way like we want to be able to pitch to editorial playlists every single time we, re we release a new song and if you release a full album you can only pitch one song from that album if you release a couple singles ahead of time and they have their own art and then you release a full album you can only pitch those first two singles and then one song from the full album so that's like three total uh, if you want to be able to pitch every single song as a single or like your top seven songs and then release all 15 in like one big chunk or something like that and not pitch five or six of them. Uh, then you have to release them in some way that allows you to do that, that pitching for editorial playlists. We live in a singles world, a singles dominated world. You want to get people adding those songs to editorial playlists. You want to get people streaming those songs immediately as quickly as possible. Uh, so you could run ads for those songs right when they come out. Uh, the quicker people are streaming those songs and the longer they're listening and the more they're saving them and adding them to playlists, the more that that song will show up in algorithmic playlists, which is what happened with Lulu's Playground, 17 singles in 17 weeks thing, where we were up to like five, 6,000 monthly listeners from zero after, you know, 10 or 11 weeks of releasing weekly singles because people were listening to the singles a lot initially they got thrown into the uh, algorithmic playlists and for whatever reason maybe because they're one minute long and and people didn't even realize they hated them until they until they were done uh nobody was skipping them and so uh you know listening to the whole minute song uh you know helps propel that song forward in the algorithmic playlist um and really like the algorithms are built to help um we kind of like bane the algorithm you know uh the algorithms are built to help. They're built to put music that people like 
into their feeds. And so if your song is something that somebody might like, Spotify wants to know that and and put that in algorithmic playlists for people that would like your song. Releasing as singles allows you to do that with every single song and doing the waterfall strategy um, allows you to slowly build a record over time, essentially being able to re-release the songs you previously released, which may create extra buzz for those songs you had previously released, especially if somebody hadn't checked out the previous releases, but they see this new one. And then, you know, that's really the other big benefit is that when you release, say your third or fourth release, when you've got two or three existing songs on the release, if they go to listen to that single that you released for the first time, it will automatically go down into the songs that you had already released. So you'll get those extra plays because somebody has listened to your single. Now it's going to automatically roll into the other songs on that same album or EP or two song single or whatever it is. Um, So you get like over time, you get people coming back to your page, listening to those same songs over and over and over again. So that will increase the amount of streams those earlier play, those earlier singles get just by nature of the fact that people will be, you know, new people may find this fourth or fifth single and then it'll automatically play the songs after it. Um, and provided your listener doesn't click away because they don't like your music, you've got you've got extra streams on all these songs you've already released. In my mind, that's the big that's the big plus. Actually, I think that's the big pl- like the two big pluses are like you can pitch all your songs uh, to editorial playlists, and you can do you can pitch on like Deezer and you can pitch on Amazon Music and all kinds of other things too. I've gotten like tens of thousands of streams on YouTube Music too uh, for some of my like more kind of niche jazz stuff. Um, which I always am surprised by. I'm always like, oh, wow, 26,000 people have listened to, you know, my arrangement of Solar with Supercell. Wow. Um, but that's like YouTube music is powerful. There's lots of people that use that as well. So you, you can pitch on all these different platforms, a lot of these different platforms. Um, I'm focusing on Spotify because it's really the main place that people listen. It's kind of the big player in the whole thing. And, uh, and this waterfall strategy allows you to pitch editorial playlist every single time you release a new song and then people will subsequently listen to the songs you had previously released now one option is each time you release a new one once you've confirmed that the streams have poured it over to the song you just released where you can see in your spotify for artists bam my streams are there for this single that was just re-released now you can go and you can delete the song that you had previously released from Spotify forever. You can go to your DistroKid or wherever you're releasing CD Baby, TuneCore, and you can hit delete and get rid of that song so it gets removed from your profile and all people see when they go there is a two-song EP, right? And then when you release your third one with the two previous songs and one new one, you can release you can you can delete your two-song EP and have a three-song EP. And then when you release the fourth and you've got the three previously released plus the new one, you can go and delete your three song EP if you want. Uh, I watch a lot of Andrew Southworth videos and he did a couple videos on this and he just basically was like, I don't care that, that there's all these extra things on my page. I just, I just allow people to, I just keep it up so people can listen to it. Um, and he does some interesting things with it too, where like the two song EP will be like an acoustic version of the first song or something like that. Um, so you could mess with those things. Like here's a metal version. Here's an acoustic version. He's like a kind of like power punk metal kind of artist, but he's also like a music, music marketing guru. Um, 
in in really like the and I don't mean that in facetiously like he's really in the game and he's 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 able he really understands Facebook ads he's a great follow if you don't follow him already um so the two big pluses certainly you get um you get the extra streams because people listen to the songs you're releasing uh, you have the option of deleting as you go. Just want to make sure that those streams are ported over, which means you have to use the same exact audio when you upload and you have to copy over the ISRC code, which is really important. Um, there's really no limit. This is this is one thing we've noticed is there's no limit to re-releasing the same song over and over again in different packages. That to me is really interesting because you could over time, because Spotify now... It's like because of the way people consume music, when a song was released really doesn't matter as much. It's like it could catch at any time. Uh, you want to be plugging, like you want to be going to TikTok and plugging your songs on TikTok. You want to be going, it's like you want to, whatever whatever medium you are comfortable with, you want to be plugging those songs for that two-month period before the second one comes out and then another one comes out and you're plugging the new song. But some sometimes those videos could take off. You know, you, YouTube certainly that way, you know, I've noticed that when I release something, it sometimes takes six, eight months before, oh, all of a sudden there's, you know, tens of thousands of streams on, or tens of thousands of listens on this or watches. That's wild. Like, that's wild. It took it took a long time, but it eventually hit because the higher quality, like, you know, in my mind, we want to focus on quality and not quantity. Even though we are talking about releasing more frequently, we're doing that in the context of we just made a record. How do we release it, right? Which is you'd either release it all at once, which feels which feels kind of like a letdown, honestly. Like, is everyone going to check out all the coolest stuff on there? If you individualize it a little bit, if you market it each song a little bit, it's like you might be getting more engagement throughout and building, building fans throughout and building people that listen to your music in a way that they wouldn't have otherwise. Um, so I do think there's a big plus to doing the waterfall strategy and I'm considering doing it for some of my music coming up, although I'm releasing, I just had, my stuff sent over to rope dope records. And so I'm, I'm releasing this new record I've been working on called sampled with, uh, with rope dope rope dope, sir, which is run by a, it's like a sub label of rope dope that, uh, is run by somebody I used to tour with. So this is why if you don't stay in the game, good things don't happen. You have to stay in the game long enough for good things to happen. Stay in the game, stay in the game. I know it's hard. It's freaking hard. I'm here. I'm still at it. It's so hard. <laughs> uh, make sure the artist name, the song name, and the ISRC and the song file are exactly the same. I took some notes, so I'm just reading you my notes now. Um, oh, and if you can't find your original audio and you want to re-release it, on DistroKid, there's a tab called Goodies, and there's a vault. And in the vault, they archive all your songs that you've released, so you can download your, your songs you've already released if you lost your audio. All right. I know that happens sometimes with hard drive crashes. That seemed like a really interesting little tidbit to me. Um, that's the waterfall strategy. That's it in a nutshell. I'm going to do a YouTube video where I like map it out on a chalkboard because I think it's a little easier like to, to learn this visually. Uh, but I think I did a pretty okay job of explaining it. And the pros... Um, if you go this route, I, I don't know that there are any like real cons to this. It's like unless you want to only release albums. It's like people do this kind of releasing until they build a big enough fan base that they feel like, okay, now I can just release records like a normal 
like a like a I guess quote unquote normal or like a like old school more old school way. I've got people that are definitely going to listen to my album. So now I can just release albums. I don't have to worry about waterfall release strategy to try and build a fan base. It's like we're all in the build phase. I'm in the build phase still. I'm four, almost 40. I'm 39. I'm still building my fan base. I'm still learning and adjusting how I do things. And I'm open. I'm open. And that's, I think, a really important... I think that's a really important uh, characteristic to have as, a, as an artist. Be open. Be flexible be malleable, be a lifelong learner, be a lifelong learner. Woo. I said a lot of heavy shit on this podcast. I'm still going to release it. Here we go. <laughs> uh, so I hope you all, um, I hope you all listen, um, and enjoy future episodes i appreciate y'all for hanging out and listening if you like the show please tell a friend send an episode that has important information in it to a friend who might like to hear that important information please that's the best way for the show to grow if you don't already please subscribe to the show wherever you listen so if you're listening on youtube hit subscribe get notifications with the bell if you're listening in apple Podcasts, hit the plus sign and add the podcast to your to your podcast app. Uh, if you're listening elsewhere, it's usually some kind of plus sign or an ad sign or a subscribe sign. And that really helps as well. That helps us grow, helps build our numbers. And we're in this to win it, baby. We're in this to win it, baby. I got some new music coming. I'm really excited about it. And... I'm uh, starting to record some more YouTube videos again, too. I was doing that for a while and really built that up, and I've got money coming in from that. Just from the videos I made back in the day. By back in the day, I mean, like, pandemic times. But I just said to myself at one point, I was like, I'm just, I'm not, I'm I'm sick of sitting on the sidelines. I'm going to get in the game. I'm going to get in the game and see what happens. I got people coming after me trying to get trumpet lessons from me online and stuff, and I don't necessarily want to do that kind of stuff. But that's like the kind of person that likes my YouTube channel. So <laughs> it is what it is. If I want to figure out a way to monetize that in a way that's deeper than just the ad monetization, then I have to figure out I have to figure out some other alternative route. Patreon, merch, something like that. I created like a whole merch store and I was gonna, you know, regularly make videos and talk about the merch store on the videos. I just haven't I just haven't done that. I got a lot going on, everybody. I got a lot going on. I'm running this university program and I'm I'm practicing my horn a lot and I've got a couple guest artists gigs coming up. I'm going to be in North Dakota. Oh man, I'm going to be in Bismarck playing uh, with University of St. Mary. Um, I'm the guest artist for their jazz festival January 26-27. I am going to be in Fargo, North Dakota uh, February 1st and 2nd. In between, I'm going to be in Minneapolis. I'm going to be in Minneapolis uh, evening of Sunday the 28th through the uh, to the 31st. I'm going to leave on the 31st to drive down to Fargo. I'm going to do a couple days in the studio, and otherwise I'm around. So if anybody in Minneapolis wants to hang, reach out. Um, anybody can reach out, adam at gigbossapp.com. And, uh, and then I'll be back again 
Supercell is going to do some, uh, do a writing sesh where we hang and play and write. And then we're trying to book some stuff for May, which I got to get on like now. I've been sending emails, but been hearing crickets lately, which is frustrating because I book a bunch of tours for my students too. And it's just like, it's so time consuming to do all this administrative work. This is part of, I just saw that uh, great trumpet player, John Raymond, who is a friend and has been on the show, talked about he wants to find a manager. So he's like working to find a manager right now to help with the administrative side of the music because I would assume he's also doing all, a lot of administrative work as the trumpet, jazz trumpet prophet, the Jacob School of Music. But John's a badass musician and, and human and uh, and I think he's on the right track. It's like we got we to gotta find help at some point. I'm going to be in Arizona playing in Mesa, Arizona on the 16th of April. Uh, I'm going to be, oh, before that, I'm going to be in Minneapolis playing. Is it before that or after that? Uh, I think it is before. Oh, I got to check my Gig Boss app. Okay, let's see. I'm going to be playing in Minneapolis at the Dakota Jazz Club. And it's going to be... Oh, of course. I've got a test version of the app here because we're really like we're working on this app so hard trying to trying to make it better. We had to like remove a bunch of old code and like replace it and, and my devs are working on that still. Oh yeah, April twenty seven. April twenty seven. Or no, twenty sixth now. It got moved to the twenty sixth. Um April twenty sixth. I am playing it's Friday night. I'm playing in Minneapolis at the Dakota Jazz Club with the great Steve Cole, with the great Steve Cole, and uh, Lou Sarmiento's on the gig. My buddy Scott Axter's on the gig. I'm gonna have Scott on the show at some point because he books everything for Blue Water Kings in Minneapolis, and he's just an amazing, amazing dude, incredible worker, amazing player, um, and he has a lot of good insights on the live music gigging side of things that we could talk about. Uh, Kirk. Johnson, drummer, former drummer for Prince. Uh, he's on the show. Dave Feely, amazing guitarist, uh, is on the show. I think I think Kaviesh is playing keyboards again. Kaviesh Kaviraj, who is a um, student of mine at McNally Smith College of Music, came from India and uh, was already playing his ass off when he, when he got here, and now he just sounds uh, incredible. Actually, this new record that my wife's band just did, a live thing that's going to become a record, Kavi's playing keyboard on that. Um, and Jeff Bailey on bass. Jeff Bailey's on that uh, thing with my wife's band as well. So these are all uh, amazing world-class musicians and artists, and uh, it's really fun to play with them and get out of the UP and like play some hot, 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 hot music. Um, so I'm going to be doing that a lot more April, May, and then certainly through the summer. Holler at me. Holler at me if you got any questions. Look, uh, if you're a student and you're listening to this, um, I'm doing a summer camp the week of August 1st at Shell Lake Arts Camp. And we talked a lot about this New Orleans stuff. I'm doing a whole camp of New Orleans music where I teach. It's the 5th through the 9th of August. Shell Lake Arts Camp where I teach students New Orleans music by ear and at the end of the week we put on a big concert and I'm sure at some point during the week there's going to be video calls from dudes in New Orleans and and uh, I'm going to be pointing my finger 
at the origins the whole way. Uh, but everybody's got to know this music. It's so great. It's so fun to play, and uh, it's infectious. And, uh, you know, what a great way to learn by ear. Like, why do we learn with sheet music when we first get our band instruments? It's stupid. It's 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 literally stupid. I'm sorry, band directors who are listening. I think it's really stupid. I think we should be learning things, call and response, first. And then introduce sheet music later. That's what I think. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do that with students, you know, between 6th and 12th grade. Uh, at that camp, August 8th through 9th, Shell Lake. My wife is texting me like, yo, get home. So I got to sign off. Peace and love, everybody. Thanks for listening. I appreciate you all. Tell a friend. Woo! We did it.